electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Thank you, Jim. I'm Brian Sullivan. And tonight, make room for Max Headroom. Could AI soon take your job? Electric shock. New analysis shows how much the Biden administration's push into EVs could fry the bottom line of automakers. Jury selection now underway in the Fox Dominion voting system's defamation trial. One of the people inside the court today will join us on what they saw. Bracing for the banks, the key indicator no one should overlook as earnings kick off tomorrow. And nothing apparently pays like losing, at least if you're the Washington Commanders. I'll tell you why we say it. That and much more. Belly up and buckle up. His last call is up right now. Well, good evening here and good afternoon out west. We're going to get to all those stories over the next hour or so. But first up on last call, maybe one of the quietest stock market rallies in recent history. If we told you that nearly half of the S&P 500 had gained more than 5% this year, or that 40 different stocks in that index have popped more than 20% since January 1st, you might think that we were the ones hitting the bar a little early on this Thursday. But it's true. Former sad sack Meta, Microsoft, Apple, all at or near one-year highs. Who'd have thunk it? In fact, with today's bump, Meta is now higher than it was one year ago. Tesla, up a whopping 72%. Much maligned GE is not only up 44% this year, but it's made investors more than 30% over the past year. One could say the, the general has been electric, but we would never say that. Now, all of this, despite some doom and gloom headlines about things like big layoffs, earnings that are likely to slow down, economic data that may be predicting a coming recession, inflation still out of control for many things. Oh, and a Federal Reserve who has basically hit us over the head, they're going to have to slow the economy to cool it off. So the question about this market rally is why? It's like stocks are running into a possible storm. And maybe that is the point. Because this is Wall Street, folks. And you may hate it or think it's gross. But sometimes stocks can do best when things start to turn for the worse. Because companies cut costs and they lay people off. And a slowing economy may then force the Fed to cut interest rates at some point. It's the bad news is good news, at least for the stock market kind of thing. Whatever you think of it, welcome to Wall Street. Joining us now with reactions, Dan Niles, the founder and senior portfolio manager of the Satori Fund. Dan, welcome. Uh, did I set it up all right? I mean, did, like, I'm not trying to be like all like cloudy, like the, the scene behind you, but stocks have done well when things are cloudy. Well, you left one important thing out, Brian. I, I always do, I just to... so you can bring it up. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're, you're, you're a good straight man then. So if I were to tell you that we're going to have a global pandemic, Brian, and you want to run out and buy stocks. You would have thought I would have hit the bar, but that's what happened in 2020. 
The S&P finished up the year 16% in the middle of a global pandemic. So why? Well, because the Fed expanded their balance sheet by $3.2 trillion that year to $7.4 So if you can think about what happened the last month, the Fed expanded their balance sheet by $400 billion in three weeks and took the balance sheet to $8.7 trillion. And you have to remember, this peaked at $9 trillion. And before the global financial crisis, to put it in perspective, their balance sheet was at $900 billion. So we got, Dan, we've got a lot of viewers on last call, we think, we hope, that are, you know, sort of casual CNBC viewers. They're not, they don't watch it all day long, but they're all smart. And they're probably smart enough to, what you just said, they're probably thinking at home, wait a minute, I thought the Fed was shrinking the balance sheet. Well, and that's the point, because it's very easy to not really be able to figure out, because you brought up a whole bunch of things, right? Companies cutting costs and what's going to happen with the interest rates. But we have a chart, and your, your viewers can go to it. It's on dannells.com. And it lays out what happened during the global financial crisis till now. And what you can see is over you know, that whole 13-year period, the stock market is tracked really closely with the Fed balance sheet. And even if you go back to the global financial crisis, People may forget that the Fed really cranked up their balance sheet during uh, after Lehman Brothers failed. And then the stock market ripped 24% in six weeks. And then they cut their balance sheet by about $300 billion, And then the stock market dropped 28%. And by the way, earnings were starting to get reported. Well, now, why, is the, but now, why is the Fed expanding its balance sheet again, Dan? I mean, I get it. You, you're, well, you're perfectly right. If, if the ba- Fed balance sheet is going up, and I'm not Kramer or you, so I don't make recommendations, but history would tell me, just put a bunch of money into the S&P 500 and then, and then go get, get a drink. Well, the reason is what we're about to see tomorrow, which is JP Morgan, Citicorp, Wells Fargo, and probably the most important, PNC, because they're not systematically important bank, they all report. And so the Fed had to expand the balance sheet to basically stop from having a global financial crisis part two between that and you know, the FDIC oh. guaranteed deposits at Signature Bank, Silicon Valley Bank, that's what ended up happening. And so that's going on underneath the surface where you're hearing all this. But the one thing your viewers have to remember is we're seeing something we haven't seen in 40 years, which is really high inflation. And I think people are expecting interest rate cuts this year are gonna be severely disappointed for one simple reason. Don't forget, China was in a COVID lockdown for three years. We saw what happened to inflation in the U.S. and in Europe last year when we came out of lockdown and everybody started spending all that excess savings. China's been locked down for three years. And so they're coming out of that. And I think what you're going to see is that they, as they stimulate their economy, yeah. which they're doing, that commodity inflation is going to stay higher than what people think. And what's built into the stock market, which is three rate cuts by the end of the year, is not going to happen because of that. So, we're, so, so stocks are, so you think this is the peak of the year, Dan? You've been nailing it. Your, your hedge fund is way up. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for right now, what, and we, we put out a post on this, I think the way stocks react to the news tomorrow is going to be critical because you can have a, you know, a continuation of this rally. I think it's pretty much close to being done. We'll see. I've got about as many shorts on as I do have shorts. So whatever happens tomorrow, we're probably not going to make money either way. We'll probably be stuck. 
because I want to see how the market reacts to this. Because if you think back yeah. to 2009, and I worked at Lehman Brothers, to imagine a 24% rally in six weeks, you're like, this, this makes no sense. And then it drops 28% in two months. So, you know, where are we? Are we in the rally phase or the decline phase? The one thing I would point out, Brian, which might be a hint, is the Fed balance sheet now has dropped about $100 billion from the peak levels. And so it's starting to shrink again. Yeah. And that may give a clue that this is bad news is going to be bad news again, as opposed to we'll, people rushing out and saying everything is wonderful. We'll see. You know what? We got to leave it there, Dan. But I, I, sometimes in my mind, which is a hamster wheel of garbage, but I feel like there's like Jay Powell is sitting there with a switch, like like red light, green light. And he's just like, watch this and see if the stock market well, goes up or down. Dan, we got to leave it there. Dan Niles, Satori Fund, starting off with the banks tomorrow. Thanks, Dan. Appreciate it. Thanks, Brian. I think Dan's view, shorter Dan, is just be vigilant, folks. These bank earnings matter. All right, so there's the view of what is going on and what may happen down the road. Let's look what happened to your money today. And to quote the great ice cube, it was a good day. You probably made money. The markets all went up. Nice 2% gain for the NASDAQ 100. How about that? Put that into the lights of the Goodyear blimp. All right, on deck. Is Biden's big emissions plan about to backfire with the automakers and his union voters? Former Ford CEO Mark Fields on the EPA's ambitious new rules. Hey, pet parents, are you searching for the perfect place for your dog to play? Check out Camp Bow Wow. Our safe and supervised doggy daycare and boarding ensures your pup gets the socialization they crave while giving you peace of mind. With our certified staff and clean and spacious facilities, your dog will have a blast making friends and staying active. Join the Camp Bow Wow Pack today. Your first day is free. Visit us at CampBowWow.com. Franchise opportunities available. Here's to the paper pushers, the rush hour warriors, and the gotta get awayers. Trade the daily grind for a place to unwind, where you can rise with the tide and roll down the boardwalk where you can eat french fries for lunch and ice cream for dinner, where your only commute is your walk to the beach, where every day feels like Saturday. Ocean City, Maryland, somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at Oceocean.com. All right, welcome back. Let's stay on one of our favorite topics lately, shall we? Cars. Because yesterday, the Biden administration basically dropped the hammer on Detroit in some ways, with proposing new emission standards that would essentially force nearly 70% of the cars you can buy in just a few years to be all electric. And this could be a really good or really bad thing for American automakers like Ford and GM. That is not our opinion. Listen to this. Today, Mizuho Securities, a research firm, put out a research note on General Motors. They initiated coverage of the stock with a neutral rating and a $39 target. Now, that would be really boring except this part caught our eye. The analyst writes, quote, GM faces profitability challenges as it transitions from about a 98% ICE internal combustion engine portfolio with 17% gross margins to about 25% electric cars that they estimate gross margins at a negative 15 to 30%. Hmm. So think about that. GM, which is finally prospering under Mary Barra's leadership after filing for bankruptcy just 14 years ago, is now going to essentially be forced to stop selling cars that make money, 
about a 17% profit, according to Mizuho, to cars that lose a lot of money, maybe 30% loss per car. That's per the report. Hopefully, Detroit can figure out how to actually make a profit off EVs the next few years, or, you know what, we don't want to talk about that. Let's stay positive. Joining us now is former Ford CEO and CBC contributor Mark Fields. And and Mark, thanks for joining us. Listen, I've been tough on EVs, not because I don't like them. People are like, why are you knocking EVs? I've been researching buying one, and the more I've dug in, the more my, you know, I've been kind of piqued my interest. Uh, Will EVs ever be profitable for Ford, GM, and others? Well, I think eventually they will be profitable, but you kind of hit the nail on the head. And, you know, you have a situation here where right now the automakers are using their profits on their big internal combustion engine products, their SUVs, their trucks, their cars, to actually subsidize the cost of EVs, which aren't profitable for for most of the automakers, with the exception of Tesla, because they cost anywhere between 20 and 40 percent more. And so for the, the goose that's laying the golden egg that's allowing the automakers to invest in EVs is now going to winnow over time with these new regulations. And the key to your point on what the automakers need to do to be profitable is they have to vertically integrate, bringing you know, batteries and other components and motors and inverters in-house. They're going to have to redesign their next generation platforms because they learn a lot from the first one and you get you know, good cost savings, as you learn, they're going to have to have continued battery innovation. And Brian, they're going to have to ruthlessly decrease costs. And that's the one thing that the auto industry, they do the best at. They know scale. They know how to drive down costs. But a piece of this is they're going to have to reduce their labor content. That's it. The bottom line is it takes a lot less labor to assemble an EV than an internal combustion engine vehicle. UAW knows this. And the UAW has a fiery new head from Indiana who's, I don't think, and by the way, open invitation for him to come on the show anytime, who, who's going to be afraid to speak his mind. And all we hear about is, and I don't want to make this overly political, but these are the people in charge, how great everything's going to be. And I, how is it? It's not going to be good for the well, UAW. Yes. <laughs> Well, it is just math at the end of the day. That's it. And, you know, the bottom line is that the new head of the UAW uh, has come in with a mandate. And I think the number one priority that the UAW is going to have in their contracts that are up in September, and they'll probably negotiate a three or four year contract, is job guarantees. And so in a situation where you're transitioning the propulsion systems from ICE to EV, you need less workers, even if the automakers will continue to kind of vertically integrate and bring in a lot of the EV component parts. And so it's going to mean less labor. And so, you know, it's, it's, it, that's exactly what the automakers are going to need to do. And it's going to make for a very combustible yeah. uh, upcoming negotiation season. Here, here's my concern. And again, people, you know, the, I think they misunderstand my take on EVs, which is not that they're fast and fun to drive. By the way, that's all we hear about, Mark, is how fast they go zero to 60. Is that what we want to market things on? Look, this 10,000 pound car can go zero to 60 in three seconds. Don't worry that there's a crosswalk nearby. Anyway, that, is, that aside, what I worry about having, having a lot of friends in Michigan have seen a lot of tough times in that great state is that we're driving the U.S. industry into this. And here's, guess what's going to happen? Here comes China. China's going to come in because they can make an electric car that costs $20,000, right? It probably doesn't look very good. It's probably not well built, 
but it's cheap. And, and so in America, we're going to have the choice of a $50,000 EV that's made, you know, by a union worker somewhere or a $20,000 EV that's made in Guangdong province. Is, is that where we're headed? Well, I don't think we're headed there. I think, as I said, as the as the automakers scale up on EVs, as I said, they are excellent at driving down costs using scale. Uh, albeit, you know, obviously the elements that go into batteries like lithium and cobalt, nickel, they don't respond to scale economies. The, the market price is the market price. So that's going to be a challenge for the automakers. At the same time, when you look at the incentives that the federal government has put in place through the, uh, the IRA Act, uh, you know, the, the Chinese-made EVs are, even though they're lower cost today, they're landed cost here into the U.S. with those uh, incentives that are available for ones that are locally made will help even the playing field to a certain degree. But the bottom line is, you know, the average consumer, what I found interesting in the announcements from the from the EPA uh, administrator was that, listen, over time, consumers are going to save whatever it is, six, ten thousand dollars. But, you know, consumers don't think that way, particularly no. in an environment where they're trying to make ends meet. They're looking for what is my monthly payment going to be when I buy this vehicle? And that's why, you know, it's so important that the government obviously have to, has yeah. to subvene this And by this the way, incentive. Mark, we got to go and the producer's going to kill me. But, but are, are those cost savings estimates accurate if you factor in the cost of replacing the battery at some point? Because these batteries are 15 grand. Well, the batteries, uh, they're about 30 percent of the cost of the vehicle. And, and an internal combustion engine, you know, it's about 10 or 12 percent of the vehicle. So ultimately, if you have to replace it, it's a cost. But these batteries last about eight years. The average length of a car on the American roads right now is 12 years. Yep, that's true. So the first owner is not going to have to replace them. So that's where it's going to get interesting in the used market. Good thing everybody makes $150,000 a year, Mark, so they can all buy up these, these used EVs, which then will need basically a new, quote, engine. Mark Fields, loved having you on. Great conversation. Thank you very much. Wow. Thanks, bro. Rich people buy something, and then they're going to give the problem to somebody else. All right, coming up, can't stand annoying ads for products that you could care less about. Coming up, how AI may change that and guarantee companies a return on their investment. Next. Hey, pet parents, are you searching for the perfect place for your dog to play? Check out Camp Bow Wow. Our safe and supervised doggy daycare and boarding ensures your pup gets the socialization they crave while giving you peace of mind. With our certified staff and clean and spacious facilities, your dog will have a blast making friends and staying active. Join the Camp Bow Wow Pack today. Your first day is free. Visit us at CampBowWow.com. Franchise opportunities available. Cool graphic. All right. AI will impact just about everything we can do. It could take jobs from journalists, professors, maybe even beloved TV personalities. Remember this? I think of myself as a normal, normal, happy-go-lucky sort of guy. But there's a lot of people who see me as something else. I guess there's a bit of both in me. That was, that was, that was Max Headroom. And that was all the way back in 1985. And no... It did not take our jobs, but that was kind of a joke. The artificial intelligence of today is no joke. And this time, it could really rock the workplace. Let's dive in and take a closer look at AI with the help 
of two of the smartest people we know, Kayla Tausche in D.C., Julia Borston. Kayla, we're going to get with you in a moment. Julia, what is your angle on AI, which still confuses a lot of people, but this is the real deal? Well, Brian, it's not just about ChatGPT. We are seeing AI impact a range of different industries, including advertising. Now, ad platforms have long used artificial intelligence to target ads to the most interested shoppers. But now, generative AI, which is the same type of technology that fuels ChatGPT, is being used to actually create ads, which could be a game changer for generating returns. The future of advertising is here, thanks to generative artificial intelligence. The uh, models that are generated here are not real people. This is a fully AI-generated model. Don't need to hire the model. You don't need to hire the cameraman. That's what Scale AI offers marketing agencies and brands. Alex Wang, CEO of Scale AI, a startup valued at over $7 billion, says his tools blow up the bottleneck that slows down advertising teams by enabling them to use their clients' data sets to instantly customize ad images with generative AI to test what drives the highest return on ad investment. You can just generate tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions of different uh, possible ads to then test. And you can use some of these ad platforms to immediately take you know, some of these generative AI ads, test them, and see what drives clicks, what drives a response from their audience. Other startups, such as ChatGPT rival Jasper, offer AI software to accelerate ad content creation. You can create eye-catching marketing and advertising copy in seconds. And Meta says it's working on the ability for brands to use generative AI to create ads. For now, it offers AI tools to A-B test ads and quickly improve. And while Google has integrated AI into ad creation and targeting for years, it hasn't yet launched generative AI options. But we can expect this next generation technology to proliferate, delivering instantly customized ads and for brands, likely better results. And you can see this car on, mm -hmm. uh, on these icy roads in wow. the middle of... Uh, it's like a car is driving down the road. I know, exactly. This innovation, though, isn't without controversy. Levi's made an announcement that it would be using AI to create diverse models. That drew backlash. Critics said they should simply hire more models of color. But in many instances, Brian, consumers may not even be able to tell that their ads were made with no camera or models involved. It's going to a lot of paydays maybe going away. Julia Borston, hopefully not ours. Thank you. All right, Kayla, mm -hmm. meantime, lawmakers are, are pushing some regulation on AI. How are things shaping up on the AI regulation front? Because I do know that regulators, they will never lose their jobs. Uh, that is right, Brian. It's a multifaceted effort that's been turbocharged by the quantum leap that the technology has made in recent months. This week, the National Telecommunications and Information Administration requested industry input on how to foster innovation while also protecting against risks. NTIA Chief Alan Davidson tells CNBC they're starting from scratch. We see real virtue in, um, uh, in the ideas of uh, companies coming up with standards for how they're going to do audits, how they're going to audit themselves, what um, good auditing standards might look like. We also are open to the idea that there might be a role for government here um, that could be through using the power of the purse and our procurement standards. 
NTIA will publish policy recommendations later this summer, but that's just one set of rules of the road being written in Washington. The White House released a so-called Bill of Rights last fall to govern safe AI applications. And then there's Congress, with Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer today floating a high-level framework on company disclosures and consumer protections. Senate aides say they'll work closely with the White House and Republicans to advance legislation, but they're not setting deadlines just yet. Meanwhile, House Republican Mike Gallagher, who chairs the Select Committee on China, was just briefed last week by Microsoft on AI and tells me the anti-tech posture may need to change, saying, quote, we can't win this AI race with China without Microsoft, Google, Apple and Amazon. But big tech has become a four letter word in American politics. Figuring out how we reconcile those two things is going to be absolutely essential. Gallagher said specifically breaking up those big companies is going to be the wrong approach and an unsuccessful one, Brian. Amazing. Wonder what somebody talk about AI in Congress. We'll see what happens. Kayla Tausche, thank you very much. All right, in the meantime, Amazon is now sprinting into the AI race. Listen to what CEO Andy Jassy told CNBC earlier today. I think you should expect that um, generative AI has the chance to transform every customer experience that you know. For AWS, we're going to make sure that every other company can use it as well. All right, so obviously AI is shaping up to be an enormous disruptor in our workplace and even our world. Joining us down in the industries that stand to gain and lose is Zeta, global co-founder and CEO David Steinberg. You know, David, it's interesting because throughout history, somebody was giving me, you know, a turd today on Twitter because they say, oh, you're anti-electric car. You must have been the pro horse and buggy guy. No, there's, there's real things with all changes. So tell us, is AI going to be good for us as, as an economy or bad for us down the road? Well, it's going to be really good for us as an economy. It's a, it's, it's a question of how does it affect the job force in the interim? Right, because this will be one of the single biggest changers to the workforce we've seen since the advent of the internet, uh, and it's really going to change the skill sets that people are going to need to be successful in sort of where the puck is going. But you know, whoever wins this quote AI war, and obviously we want it to be the United States, uh, will have a absolute boon to its economy and in massive waves of productivity increasing uh, and the ability to do things better, faster, cheaper. Every every tech boom has caused people to say this is going to kill jobs, but yet we just keep adding jobs for the most part, right? Because it generates more economic activity, things we can't even think about now. But there's something, even with me as a sort of historic guy or historian, David, there's something about AI that feels different. It it is different, but you're absolutely right. Everybody always cries. The the Internet's going to destroy jobs. The computer is going to destroy jobs. What it did was it changed jobs. Now, uh, if you look at our company, we've grown our business by the end of 22 by a compounded rate of 25% a year on a three-year basis, but we only grew our global workforce by 6%. But we still grew our global workforce, Right. You're using AI to do things that humans can't do, process trillions and trillions of data points on a daily basis. Quite frankly, humans are not capable of doing that. But the retooling and the skill sets that are going to be needed in the AI society in which we're moving into, as I like to call it, are going to be very, very different from the industrial revolution or the information technology society we are today. Any group of jobs that should be particularly nervous right now? 
You know, it's interesting, Brian. I think for the first time, you're going to see higher-end professional jobs at risk, lawyers, accountants, other functions like that, where outsourcing of manufacturing and, you know, more middle-of-the-road jobs have been the ones that have really been hit over the last 10 years. I think over the next 10 years, you're going to see a big hit to some of those higher-end professional jobs where AI can do the work that a traditional lawyer or an accountant can do. And they don't take sick days, they don't take vacation time, they don't complain about working from the office. David, thank you very much. Big stuff. All right, still ahead, we got some breaking news on Boeing. The stock is down big. It has to do with a plane fuselage issue. We have that breaking news next. Our time now for tomorrow's news tonight. We have some breaking developments out of Boeing. It is warning that it may cut 737 MAX production and deliveries. It is due to a quality issue with a fuselage part from their supplier, publicly traded Spirit Aerosystems. In a statement, Spirit says it is, quote, not an immediate safety of flight issue and does not impact 737 MAXs currently in service. Remember, that is the plane that was taken out of service following two accidents, crashes, deadly crashes, a couple of years ago. Shares of Boeing right now being hit hard, down nearly 5%. Shares of Wichita, Kansas-based Spirit Aerosystems down even more, almost 8% right now. Something certainly to watch tomorrow. All right, next, the landmark trial that we have been following very closely here on Last Call. Jury selection officially underway in the $1.6 billion defamation suit with Dominion Voting Systems against Fox News. All ahead of opening statements Monday in a Delaware court. Joining us now for more is Washington Post media reporter Jeremy Barr, who is in the courtroom today. Jeremy, take us there. What happened and what's going to happen? It was a very slow day in court. Yesterday was very exciting because basically near the end of the court session, um, we had this whole revelation that essentially Dominion is, is claiming that they did not, that Fox did not properly classify Rupert Murdoch as an officer of Fox News. Um, and essentially that now has opened Fox up to this new investigation into the case. And the special master is getting involved in looking at whether Fox did not properly give documents over to Dominion. Yesterday was the very exciting day. Today was more about waiting for the jury process to play out. We thought there was a chance we might get a jury pick today. Uh, but at the end of the day, the, basically the judge came out and said that actually he's not going to pick the jury until Monday morning. Um, he thinks he has enough people, but... Um, he just couldn't quite get it all done today. Is there any chance we can get some surprise settlement over the next couple of days? I think people have been asking that for a long time. I mean, it, it always made sense to be a case that was settled. Um, it's a monetary case. Um, Fox Corporation obviously is worth a lot of money. Um, this has been an incredibly costly legal battle. There are tons of attorneys involved in this. Just going to court, you see 20, 25 high-powered, expensive attorneys been a very long process, but I think since we're so close to the start of trial, it seems pretty unlikely. I think both sides are dug in pretty intensely. There was some mediation in December that they were required to do as part of the stipulation, but that mediation was unsuccessful. All right. Really appreciate that view, and uh, we'll see you next week, I'm sure. Thank you. All right. Next up, new details in the murder of Cash App founder Bob Lee. CBC reporter Mackenzie Sagalos has those details. Mac. Hey, Brian. So an arrest was made today in connection with the murder of Bob Lee, prominent tech executive 
who's formerly in the C-suite of Jack Dorsey's fintech company, Block. Now, at a press conference this afternoon, authorities made it clear that Lee's April 4th fatal stabbing was not an act of random violence or robbery gone wrong. Instead, the suspect, a 38-year-old man named Nima Momeni, knew the victim. The SF police chief said he wouldn't comment on motive in the case. We also don't know in what capacity they were connected. So at this stage, we just know that Momeni was an IT consultant and Berkeley grad living across the bay from San Francisco. In terms of the criminal counts here, the district attorney says that Momeni is being charged with murder with a special allegation that he used a knife as his weapon. The arraignment is set for tomorrow, and prosecutors say they'll be filing a motion to detain him without bail. We heard from SFPD and the DA in a press conference earlier. I must point out that reckless and irresponsible statements like those contained in Mr. Musk's tweet that assumed incorrect circumstances about Mr. Lee's death serve to mislead the world in their perceptions of San Francisco and also negatively impact the pursuit of justice for victims of crime. So officials there clearly taking aim at this narrative that's gained momentum in the last week that SF is a lawless city. Well, look, going after Musk, I get it, but it's kind of a, it was an odd thing to do. I, the, the homicide rate is up 33% from last year to this year, according to CompStat, which is the San Francisco thing. So a, a murder is a murder is sad. Um, do we know anything more about this guy, Momeni? Like, what do we know about him? Like, it was 2.30 in the morning. Oh, right. And, and it was at the end of a business trip for Bob Lee. He extended it by a day. We know that he's found in downtown San Francisco. A nice area. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, the business district. Yeah. Um, and, and so at this point, it really felt like that press conference was just skewing toward trying to counter the narrative over this nine day manhunt that SF was a city of uh, repeat violent offenders, which is what has been the talk of national news headlines last week. We've talked a lot about San Francisco and Chicago, not because we're picking on them, but because they're critical to American business and hundreds of billions in commercial real estate. That's why we focused on those cities. Mackenzie Segalos, thank you. Thanks, Brian. All right, coming up, all you long-suffering Washington football fans cheering the end of an era. And we're going to put some CBC numbers on it that will fill you with joy or rage. All right, time now for your daily RBI, something random but interesting that you may not hear anywhere else. And once again, let's stay on sports and money, because according to ESPN, Washington Commanders owner Dan Snyder is finally nearing a deal to sell the football team. The price tag said to be six point zero five billion dollars. That would be about one and a half billion more than what one of the Walmart heirs paid for the Denver Broncos less than one year ago. Dan Snyder's tenure as Washington's owner has been rocky, to say the least. And the once great franchise has, let's be honest, stunk it up over the last 24 years or so. But it won't matter to Snyder and his probably still rich great-great-great-great-great-great-grandkids. Because listen to this. Washington finished with winning records just six times in 24 Snyder seasons. They only won two playoff games in that time. And over those years, they lost 200 and 26 games, some of the most in all of the NFL in that time. But buyers of football teams apparently don't care about things like that because this deal is about to set a record. And all of you Washington fans I know better sit down. All you guys out there, maybe drink it, Fultz, Lisky, whoever it is. Because Snyder paid just $800 million for the team in 1999. And if this deal for $6 billion goes through, it'll mean that Snyder basically got $23 million richer 
every time Washington lost. He may not be liked by most fans, but he's about to become super, super rich. 23 million, basically richer for each loss. I know it's not the right way to look at it, but we thought it'd be fun. For reaction, let's bring in Axios business editor, Dan Primack. Dan, you, you get our point. We're just trying to put a number on this. How does it, how do, they don't own the field? They don't even have a stadium, I don't think. How are they worth one and a half billion more than the Broncos in just seven months? Well, they do have FedEx Field in this 200 acres or this big lot. They in want Lando. to leave it. They want to go somewhere else. They, they want to go. So a couple of things. For starters, it's not, so right, this is an incredible amount. Any other team that's been bought, you know, it's, some, it's partially about the team and the TV rights and all that. But it's arguably about the real estate, not just the existing stadium, but all the stuff, the restaurants, the clubs you can put around it. They're going to have to build all this. So the $6 billion is really just to, for Josh Harris and Mitchell Rails to get their foot in the door. Then they have to either build a new stadium or figure out where to develop it. It will be a little easier to do without Dan Snyder, though, because whether it be Maryland or Virginia or D.C. proper, everybody hates Dan Snyder. So nobody particularly wanted to help him out. Yeah. and look, OK, so Josh Harris, the, the Apollo Global Manager co-founder, it, this guy, not a household name, but is becoming one. He's still a part owner of the 76ers, correct? He's a majority part owner, but majority control owner of the 76ers, so, of the New Jersey Devils. And he has a piece of the Pittsburgh Steelers, a minority piece of the Steelers, which I assume he has to divest as a piece So of wait this. a minute. So Josh Harris is the majority owner of the Philadelphia 76ers. He now will be rooting against the Eagles. And I can tell you, as somebody who is based is in that, Boston. How are fans going to deal with that? They're going to deal badly with it if one of the teams does poorly or if he spends big on a free agent for either team, right? Because you're going to have the fan base of one city saying, wait, he's spending his time and his money to make our team lose. I, I live here in Boston, and we deal with that with the Red Sox being owned by a guy who owns a, a British Premier League team and now a hockey team. It comes up here, but we don't have rivalries with those places like Philly and D.C. do. We've had Stephen Pagluk on, on many times. He's a good guy. But you got my kind of sideways point. You yeah. own the Sixers. Nobody. Can, my point is there's no city loyalty anymore. Nobody cares what the Waltons are based in Arkansas. They buy the Denver, probably fly in for the game, fly home. But this is sports teams are now just private equity playthings, aren't they not? I mean, I, and they don't Primarily. go down in value. And it shows you're, you're not just rich. You're like 400 foot yacht rich. You are. I will say one thing about this that I'm curious about. So so there's Harris, there's Mitchell Rails, who's the guy who co-founded Donner Corp, a D, big D.C. company. And, you know, Magic Johnson's a piece of this. I don't quite know where these two guys, though, come up with six billion dollars in cash. It does make me wonder if there's some third parties in here. And, and one thing we don't know is if Snyder gets to maintain any stub of this. We assume not because Snyder kind of is the, the toxic thing here that they need to excise. But, you know, we've seen some of these deals, for example, when the Phoenix Suns got sold, the new owners don't actually even own, in that case, even a majority stake. Yeah. And I know this is different, but just because it's $6 billion price tag doesn't mean they're necessarily paying all six. People didn't like Snyder, but he bought it for $800 million, which is like a billion and a half in today's money. He's got to sell it for $6 billion, become generationally, generationally, generationally wealthy. And dare I say, Dan, I know you're a Boston guy. I'm a Chargers fan. I can't make fun of anybody. I don't even have a city. But that said, can they please change the name? It's not too late. To change it for the oh, commandos just, or whatever they are. It's Josh Harris's team. He can probably do what he wants. It'll have to get through. But listen, the other NFL owners are going to be so happy to get rid of Dan Snyder. Josh yeah. Harris is going to have a little bit of a, a free ride for The a bit. Washington 77s. That's what they should name the team. Dan Primack, thank you very much. Thanks, Brian. All right. The potential commander's sale is not the only big news out of D.C. Former Trump attorney Bill Barr is joining a new business lobbying group taking direct aim at Biden administration regulations. 
Let's bring in CBC's political finance reporter, Brian Schwartz. What is the former AG going to do here, Brian? Well, yeah, thanks for having me, Sully. He's taken on uh, an advisory role with the American Free Enterprise Chamber of Commerce, which really has become uh, the alternative to the U.S. Chamber of Commerce we all know. Uh, and for Mr. Barr, it comes after his tenure in the Trump administration. And he's going to be advising on a number of items, uh, litigation matters. Uh, she's gonna be, he's going to be trying to hire a number of attorneys to bring on board to this new project through this new uh, lobbying group that launched about a year ago. And that's where we stand right now, what his role is going to be with this organization. And what's the, I mean, the goal, obviously, we just said it in the intro, is to roll these things back. But exactly how does money do that? You just buy Congress people? I- well, you know, what, what are the, the, the themes that they this this group was telling us that Barr is going to be involved with um, is advising on a litig- on, on litigation matters. So there, as an example of this, the SEC is, is proposing a climate disclosure rule for companies to publicly disclose uh, certain elements of their uh, climate initiatives. And really, uh, that example goes to what Bill Barr is going to be looking at. They didn't say per se they're going to be suing on that matter, but they're definitely going to be taking a look at that element of what the SEC is proposing Mm. and many similar uh, rule proposals going forward. Brian Schwartz, great story. Urge everybody to read it. CBC.com. Brian, thank you. All right, coming up, breaking the banks, the critical indicator to watch out for is earnings. Kickoff tomorrow. All right, welcome back. Time now for our last call watch list. And today, all eyes are on what else? The banks. Tomorrow morning, banking, heavyweights, J.P. Morgan, Wells Fargo, Citigroup, and PNC all set to report their earnings. Tired just thinking about it. And next week, we're going to hear from other major banks like Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs. This will be the first time banks are reporting earnings since, of course, the Silicon Valley and Signature Bank crises. And investors will be using a microscope, tweezers, to determine how the companies are positioning themselves in its wake. While things have been calming down, certainly with the stocks, it is no doubt but a tough couple of months for the big banks. The top five largest banks in the U.S. all seeing major declines over that period. Look at that. Bank of America down 20 percent. First Republic down 90 percent. And not surprising, it's been an even worse picture for some of the regionals. PNC, barely call that a regional. It's huge, down 24 percent. Let's get right down to our panel to talk more about that. The New York Times, Kate Kelly, and the Financial Times, Josh Franklin, uh, Kate, let's start with you. It's it's kind of hard to start off earnings season with the banks, given what's going on. But that's how we're starting. Yeah, I mean, there's there's some known, Brian, but there's so much unknown. And I was just reading all the coverage today. I mean, people have made the comparison that this is the toughest period for banks since 2008, which is sort of scary to think about, you know. Um, so I think as much as anything, it will be really interesting to listen to the CEO's commentary and the CFO's commentary on what they expect to see coming ahead. Now, there are some encouraging t- signs, like I don't want to tick through them all because there's a lot to say, but you know, the, the discount window borrowing by banks from the Fed has declined for the fourth straight week in a row. The bank term funding apparatus that the Fed set up uh, mid-March uh, in, amidst this crisis declined this past week. So those are good signs. We think maybe inflation is tapering off a little bit. But there's going to be caution when it comes to lending. We could see restructuring. Mm. We saw Truist today said they're getting out of the mortgage-backed securities trading business. Jamie Dimon warned in his annual letter that some of these businesses are just so capital intensive, so risky, um, and require such kind of scale to really do with a decent profit margin yeah. that banks are going to start getting out of it. And so I think we should be attuned to all of the sort of environmental observations, structural changes, 
and sort of predictions for credit lending and other key business areas, as well as deposits. Yeah, well, that see, you ended right where I was going with Josh. You didn't even know, but thank you. I mean, Josh, isn't mind the, meld. looking because we worked together for years. We just got the mind meld. Josh, de is deposits uh, deposits are never looked at with these banks. I'm guessing this is the first thing people are going to be looking at. No, deposits, that's the absolute name of the game for, for all the banks going into earnings season. And I think it's been interesting to see because the big banks and all the banks have been bleeding deposits really for um, for several quarters now. And this will probably mark 12 months of declines in deposit levels. Uh, but I think banks have felt pretty comfortable with that. You know, they had a huge inflow of deposits during the pandemic when there were all these stimulus measures. Um, so they didn't really mind bleeding a few deposits if it meant that they could pad their um, their profit margins when it came to lending. But now with so much attention on deposit levels across the banking industry, I think you're going to see more and more um, competition for deposits heat up and you'll probably see profit margins at banks um, contract as a result. I mean, but Josh, one more to you back to, before we go back to case. So, Josh, do you think these banks could be winners? I mean, the stocks are not acting like it, but weren't they the ones harvesting all the money? No, it's an excellent point, because, I mean, if you look at um, if you look at what the results will show um, tomorrow and next week at the big at the big universal banks, the big deposit gathering banks, they probably analysts are expecting they'll probably lose deposits. But it probably would have been an even worse picture had it not been for Silicon Valley Bank on the deposit front, because to your point, they spent a lot of March you know, onboarding a lot of customers that were leaving Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank, other regional banks where there were some concerns. Uh, so I think to your point, and as one analyst, I think Mike Mayo at Wells Fargo talks about it, it's Goliath winning. I think longer term, certainly they could be beneficiaries. But from a deposit standpoint, I think it's not going to be plain sailing for banks when you've got things like money market funds offering really attractive rates. Uh, for um, for cash on the side. Separate issue, Kate Kelly, a little bit off topic, but I know you know this. Um, does J.P. Morgan Chase have a Jeffrey Epstein problem? Because it just feels like I knew like you were going to ask about Jeff Staley. I knew how it. could I not? But there was all that stuff they knew about him as a hey, he had issues since 2006. That came out yesterday. Yeah, I'll tell you, you know, I covered this really closely, um, God, three years ago, maybe. I've sort of lost track of time. This has been such a, a thorny and ongoing saga. Um, and at the time, I, you know, everybody lawyered up. J.P. Morgan lawyered up. J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Jess Daly himself. Remember, at the time, he was the CEO of Barclays. And, you know, he insisted that the relationship was sort of casual. Um, he told people he had... Uh, worked with Jeffrey Epstein and socialized with him occasionally. I, I, I vaguely recall hearing that it was like single digit times that he had hung out with Jeffrey Epstein, although he did visit him in prison um, when he was imprisoned on separate charges for sex trafficking in Florida. Um, and it really minimized the scope and scale of their relationship. And now with the emails that have come through and the new mm -hmm. information, it, it, it's just it either Jess had a huge lapse of memory or he just wasn't being forthright. I mean, it's just an incredibly bad look. Yep. Um, and now, of course, J.P. Morgan wants to deflect blame to him. And maybe they're right. I mean, obviously, this is a court process. We'll see what happens. But it's just astonishing to me how the sort of ball of yarn continues to unfurl. And don't forget, I mean, this has no. already taken... Leon Black out of his position leading Apollo. It forced a major shakeup at a huge private equity firm. It feels like um, a, just kind of like a boat, like some, you know, you just don't know where that whirlpool is going to stop. And there's a lot swirling around. Kate, we got to leave it there. Thank you. Josh Franklin, got to leave it there. Appreciate it, everybody. All right. Do you know what happened 26 years ago? Today was a day that changed golf forever. Tiger Woods won his first major at Augusta. Let's take you back in time. To April 13, 1997, Woods became the first African-American to win the Masters. And at 21 years old, 
He also became the youngest player to ever wear the green jacket. Since then, Woods has really dominated the links, winning 82 PGA tournaments, 15 major championships. Obviously, the last couple of years, not so much. But Tiger Woods, a legend, has made a lot of green, by the way, on those greens. According to estimates from Sport Track, he has earned more than $157 million in his career. And that's just golf. Obviously, earnings are going to be way, way, way from endorsements more than that. In fact, Forbes estimates Tiger's net worth is north of a billion dollars. Only two other athletes are part of the Billionaires Club. That would be, of course, his heiress, Michael Jordan, as well as LeBron James. Tiger Woods, by the way, not the only one to cash in on the 97 Masters. Last weekend, a man auctioned one of Tiger's golf balls, golf balls from that tournament. The winning bid? $64,000 for a golf ball. Amazing. All right, by the way, I got to give us, how are you watching last call? Special shout out to the two slots brewery in Manassas, Virginia. Got some friends there watching last call at the bar. Two slots brewery. Anybody that's got CNBC on is our friend. Thanks everybody for watching. I'm actually off tomorrow. Amazing. Carl Quintanilla will be here to guide you through it. We will see you on Monday. Have a cocktail. Shark Tank starts now. Jump into the world of Wildcrats at Philadelphia's Please Touch Museum. Explore the world of this PBS Kids series in the Wildcrats Creature Power Museum exhibit, opening May 31st. Discover animal habits from around the world as you swing through the trees like a spider monkey, sneak through the forest like a jaguar, hunt for lunch like a platypus, and much more in this adventurous new exhibit. Get tickets at pleasetouchmuseum.org. That's pleasetouchmuseum.org.